Hey, welcome to Sunday Night School, Sunday Day Night School. And it's very rare that I do an episode on Sundays because normally my Sundays are just filled, filled with football. They're my most ritualistic day in many ways. Speaking of rituals, uh, they're superstitious. You know, my Sundays tend to be superstitious because on one level I've mentioned before how Sunday is the day to banish ghoulishness from your life. It's a religious day for some people, but I think for anybody, Sunday is this day where you can banish ghoulishness from your life. But beyond that, you know, my, my superstitions on Sundays are very silly. They're sports fan superstitions where I have to wear a shirt. I have to wear the shirt of my team before I watch the game. Basically, I, until the end of the game, I need to either be wearing my shirt or if I'm working out, because I, I try to multitask on Sundays where I'm not just watching football, but I'm either working out, playing guitar, maybe not so much this year, but usually in years past, I use it as a chance to draw. I don't like to just, I never like to sit and do nothing. I never like to sit and watch things. I always have to be multitasking. But it's a day to get things done while I'm watching football. But I either have to be wearing my team shirt or it has to be nearby. If my shirt is off, it has to be nearby. I mean, it, it's silly, of course. And I even feel that I have to meditate in the morning before the games start or my team's going to lose, which is extra silly when I think about my, my real motivations for having a meditation practice and the fact that one day per week on this holy day, my meditation is associated with my football team winning. And coincidentally, today I didn't do it. Today I did not meditate, and my team lost. So we'll see what the scientists have to say about that proof. But uh, to me, that's proof enough. And, and of course, not meditating. Of course, I don't want to turn this into uh, some rambling meditation talk, which is too easy to do. Uh, but not meditating feels like not brushing my teeth, except my head feels different. My head just feels, it's almost the same feeling you get when you have been talking on the phone for a long time and you feel feverish. You don't have an actual fever, but your head just feels hot. It's almost that sort of feeling minus the heat, where it's just almost not, not quite a headache. It's almost like there's this soreness. I don't know, maybe eventually I'll be able to accurately describe the feeling I get. But I think it's good to break from that too. You know, even if your football team loses because you don't meditate in the morning, even if you your team loses because you didn't psychically will them to win, and it's not like I meditate about the football games that are about to be played. I've just developed this little superstition, this little set of rituals that I do, particularly on Sundays. And, you know, as a result of having a full day Sundays, very rarely do I do an episode. But enough about that. Enough, enough introduction, enough context. And, you know, I'm thinking about the pseudo-tribalism that goes on. And I, I want to emphasize that phrase, pseudo-tribalism, because in recent years, as political tensions have escalated, as people have divided themselves further, as people have become more ideologically possessed, Many people have pointed out, oh, it's tribalism. It's tribalism. And that's, I'm glad people are observing that. I would rather have people make that observation than not. 
But I eventually realized it's actually pseudo-tribalism because these aren't real communities. A tribe is a community of people who depend on one another. They are interrelated. They are interconnected in a concrete way. There is very little abstraction connecting a tribe to the other members within that tribe. And what we're seeing now is not that. What we're seeing now is are not real communities. They are these imagined communities. And so it's not real tribalism. We're not talking about people who depend on each other in most cases. Yeah, to some degree. To some degree, yeah, there's friend groups. There's groups of friends who all believe the same thing and help each other. But that's not what's going on entirely. You know, when, when I talk about these pseudo-tribes... They're interconnected through information. And that's no basis for a real community. Information is not a basis for community. You can agree with people. You can share information with people. But to think that that actually takes the place of community or can be called a community or called a tribe just doesn't sit well with me. So I think what's going on is more of a pseudo-tribalism. And right now we see that in full force. We see it in full force, as you would expect, less than a week after the erection. You know, as you would expect, it's in full force right now. And people are so so focused on the details that I don't think they're really paying attention to the, the pseudo-tribalism and the way it's playing out right now in possibly the most severe form I've ever seen it. And this is I guess this will be sort of a meta-conversation. It's a, it's a meta-conversation about this pseudo-tribalism. It's two things I'm trying to do less of are one, generalize, and two, swear particularly the two together. Everyone's fucking saying, uh, everyone, because uh, I, I guess when I say I'm trying not to generalize, something that has started to deeply rub me the wrong way, it's given me a deep rub, it's massaged me, it's given me a deep tissue massage, but in some sort of weird direction that I don't like. It's when you hear someone say, everyone's saying this. And sometimes I'll be talking to a friend or somebody, and they'll say, they'll be like, everybody's asking me that. And I'll be like, who? How many people have asked you that? And then it turns out it's one or two people. But just one or two people saying something becomes everyone. And then it's verbalized as everyone. Because it feels that way to the person. You know, if you see two people say something, it kind of blurs into this something much larger than than what it is. And you should be very careful when you use the word everyone. And of course, I do it. Everyone should be careful when they say everyone. Of course, I do it all the time. That's why I'm trying not to do it. But it's very easy to do it when you see somebody say something that you don't like. Because if you see anything else that even suggests that it's in agreement with that, you amplify that into this mass of people. And of course, there are masses of people. 
there are masses of people saying the same thing. And so that's what makes it difficult because there are a lot of people who are in virtual agreement, people who are pushing the same phrases, slogans, people who are just repeating each other, echoing each other. And because of that, it's very easy. I mean, because there are so many people doing that, it gets amplified further. But it's worth making a distinction in your own mind when it comes to whether you heard it from one person, whether you heard it from two people, whether you heard it from everyone. And to me, it's, it's created this ugly language where you often hear everyone saying, uh, everyone saying this. Oh, everyone says that. And the thing about generalization is it's not all bad. When you hear, when you hear somebody say, oh, you're generalizing. You have a tendency to take that negatively. I mean, and the intention is negative. When someone says, oh, stop generalizing, you know, it's, it's negative. And there's this idea that generalization has no purpose. And I don't want to go in that direction here where I'm saying generalization is all bad. Because generalization has a, you know, it has a positive side to it as well. And not just positive, but I mean, generalization, it has a purpose. And even if it doesn't cover every possible scenario, even if it doesn't cover every possible uh, variable, it still has a purpose and it communicates basic truths, general truths. And I mean, an example would be if I were to say, oh, uh, the great thing about 95-year-olds is this so nonviolent. 95-year-olds are nonviolent. And then somebody could say to me, well, here's an example of a 95-year-old man who beat another 96-year-old man. I don't know why I jumped a year. Uh, but somebody could turn around and be like, here's a newspaper article that, about a 95-year-old man who beat a 96-year-old man to death in a nursing home. That proves that they can be violent too. But generalizing is to say most 95-year-olds aren't beating anybody up. They're not killing anybody. Unless they're in a car, unless they're driving. But on the whole, as far as malicious violence, people in their 90s, you know, definitely aren't who you think of. Oh, somebody broke into somebody's house and murdered them. You know, we don't have any witness reports. Uh, who do you think did it? Well, maybe a 95-year-old. We can't rule out a 95-year-old. You know, of course you're going to rule them out. It's going to be beyond exceptional. And this is going to be the hill that I die on, is defending 95-year-olds, saying that they're the most nonviolent people. I mean, they're, even, they're less violent than 99-year-olds, because 99-year-olds know they're about to die, and they're just like, maybe I should just kill somebody, just to know what it's like. 95-year-olds, they haven't quite gotten there yet. 99-year-olds have. You know, that's, it's a positive generalization. Those people generally don't do this bad thing. And there, there, can, there's, there's nicer versions than that. There's nicer versions of positive generalization than just really old people don't kill people randomly for fun. There's a lot more positive versions of that. Women in the 20s tend to be more beautiful. 
Women in their 20s tend to be more beautiful than women in their... You know, I shouldn't even add a negative edge to that. Just say women in their 20s tend to be the most beautiful women. I don't even know that I believe that. But I think it's a positive generalization to say it. When you get away from the fact that it might exclude certain people, it's a very nice thought that these people have a great quality or these people have great singing voices. You know, people, uh, people raised in this Italian village have the best operatic range. I don't know. I could keep coming up with examples, but I think you understand what I mean by positive generalization in the face of generalization having such a negative connotation in our society. So I don't want to get away from generalization entirely, but I guess I want to make fewer negative generalizations, even though that has a function too. That has a clear function. I mean, going back to the murder scene, going back to the murder scene, you go back to somebody dies and they don't have a witness account. You know, are you going to say, oh, it's probably a woman. It was probably a woman that broke into this house and killed a six foot five tall bodybuilder. No, of course not. You're going to say it was probably a man. It was probably a physically fit man or a man that had a weapon. You know, it's, it's a generalization, but it serves a function because we know that most of the people who do things like that tend to be men. Not that that's a fact, not that that proves anything, but we can make that generalization because that's typically what happens. But I guess the sort of generalizations I want to get away from are the casual ones that in fact aren't factual. Like saying everyone when you mean someone. But even though that's how you feel, it's not the reality. And another form of that, getting back into the pseudo, 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 pseudo tribalism, or as I call it, pseudo now, I now call it, I now use shorthand for pseudo tribalism and just call it pseudo, subal, subalism. But, uh, you know, pseudo tribalism, you know, we, we start to see the world in terms of checklists where we have our own checklist and our enemy has a checklist. And if somebody believes in one item on that enemy checklist, which sounds so cool, the enemy checklist, but if someone believes in one item on that enemy checklist, we generalize and we think, okay, they support all of those items. And even if they say they don't, even if they protest that, even if they say, no, I actually only care about this one issue, we say, oh, but by caring about that one issue, you are adjacent to all of those other issues. Therefore, you support all those other issues. And the conversation often doesn't even get that far. It often doesn't even get that deep where we're actually discussing how someone supporting one thing on a checklist but not the other items is still somehow a form of support for all of the items on the checklist. You know, the conversation often doesn't get that far. And it just, we, we hear them say one thing. We hear them say, well, you know, I'm not entirely sure about 
the left's stance on abortion. And we don't go any further than that. We just go, okay, bigot, racist. Oh, so you you don't think rich people should be taxed. You think toddlers should be given submachine guns. And they should use endangered animals for target practice. Oh, you support the legalization of marijuana, huh? So uh, you also support just rampant abortion, forced interracial marriage. You know, we jump to these conclusions, you know, based on one item on a given checklist. And it's a generalization of somebody. And that person then becomes a representative of this whole set of ideas that they might not actually believe in, but we see them that way based on one little detail. And we're not interested in taking the conversation any further than that one little detail because that's enough. It's like trying to figure out what somebody looked like because you found their fingernail. And I don't downplay the importance of fingernails at all. I probably spend more time thinking about my fingernails than I do most other parts of my body. I spend more time thinking about my fingernails than I do thinking about my dicky. That's how important fingernails are to me. So I'm not saying that fingernails aren't important. I'm not saying one little detail isn't important. But the idea of thinking you know the total shape of a human being based on their fingernail alone, no, you don't. But we've gotten into that mode. We've gotten into that mode of thinking. We. I guess it's okay to generalize if you include yourself in the group, I suppose. If you say we as opposed to you or everyone. Everyone's saying, everyone thinks that if you find a fingernail, you can map out exactly what the entire body of that person looks like. Everyone's thinking that. This sounds so ugly to me. That thought is so ugly to me. So ugly. The person with the fingernail is so ugly. I can just, I can just tell this person's ugly from the fingernail clipping I found. But, uh... Yeah, it's just it's it's trying to map out the the entirety of not just that one person because it's not even that you're just imagining everything that one person thinks. You're using that person as a dummy for the entire ideology that you think they represent, the entire political party. And it just you know it doesn't work that way. But people themselves willingly participate in that process too on their own side of the fence because thinking about that idea of the checklist where it's like oh there's one item this person that I'm arguing with believes in one item on the enemy's checklist and because of that they believe all of them as far as I'm concerned it's not just that you do that to outsiders so-called outsiders insiders do that as well and I've had really strange, in my opinion, strange discussions with liberal friends. And I don't, I don't even know if that word is accurate anymore. I've seen increasing debate over whether the term liberal accurately describes the modern left, the far left. And I don't think it does, but it 
for lack of a better term, let me just say liberals. I've had these discussions with liberal friends in years past, before things were as heightened as they are now even. So I don't know what it would be like now to have the same conversation. But I'll agree with one item on their checklist. And then they'll be like, oh, but you believe in this too. And I'll say, oh, no, I don't. And they'll say, no, no, but because you believe in this one item on our checklist, like obviously you believe in all the items. It came up in a discussion about women and feminism. And because because my basic values aren't opposed to the general idea of feminism in that, you know, I believe women should have as much independence as they seek without some sort of, you know, external, you know, limitation, you know, I don't, you know, and, and however much of that they want or don't want is totally up to them. As long as you're not telling me what it means to be a man, you know, that's basically where I draw a line where it's like, I'm not going to tell you what you should or shouldn't do. And you can't tell me what I should or shouldn't do. Obviously, barring, you know, barring certain things, obviously, but I just mean in terms of your conduct as an individual within your own life, and how you see the world, and how being a man or being a woman impacts that. I don't believe in telling anybody else what that is, what what their perspective is. But anyway, you know, I had some friends who just couldn't wrap their brains around the fact that I am not a feminist. Because they were like, well, yeah, but you believe this, this, and this. I've seen how you conduct yourself. You've said things over the years, and you're obviously a feminist. And I was just like, I'm not, though. And it's not, and I don't believe that's as simple as, as not calling myself that. I don't believe it's as simple as the title. You know, uh, it's a professional title. My name is my Eric Stonefelt, feminist. You know, I don't even think it's as simple as the title. I don't think that that word and whatever it represents in all of its varied meanings, of which there are now many, I just don't believe that the idea itself even represents me, even if I behave in line with it in some ways. I don't believe that it defines me, but because I believe in certain, or I act out more than belief, because I act out certain parts of that checklist, certain components, it was very difficult for these intelligent people to understand that the whole idea doesn't represent me and I don't represent it, even if aspects of it do line up with my way of thinking, and more importantly, my way of being. You know, I don't have, there's no pseudo-tribal affiliation for me when it comes to ideas like that. Either my conduct lines up with it, or it doesn't, and I, I keep a close eye on my conduct, so in either case, I'm totally fine with whatever conclusion someone wants to draw. And if they need a title or a label in order to feel that I'm part of their pseudo-tribe, that's not on me at all. Um, but it was very difficult for people to think like, oh, well, you, you support this. How could you not support that? Because people operate off of the same checklist format when it comes to their own beliefs and their own affiliation, which is why you often see people who 
get introduced to a certain way of thinking because of one idea. But there's a lot of social pressure to then take on a bunch of other ideas which aren't necessarily interlinked. They're not necessarily interconnected. But they've been packaged that way, and as a result, it's hard to separate them, especially because there is immense social pressure. There is immense pseudo-tribal influence coming in, and certain pseudo-tribes have taken on certain ideas and claimed them as their own, which they have no right to do. No political party has a right to claim any idea as their own. No social group, no movement has the right to claim anything as their own unless it explicitly deals with them and only them. And even then, they might not all agree with each other, which is what we see with identity politics, where if somebody's gay and they don't agree with the far left's you know, idea of you know, I think you can see where I'm going here. Like, where if somebody is part of a, a certain identity group, like if somebody is black, but they are a black Republican, you will see people tell them, oh, you're not really black. And they will use all sorts of other phrases and in effect become the thing they hate. You become the thing you hate when you demonize a person and think that you have their best interests in mind and that they somehow don't know what's best for them. I mean... I think you become the thing you claim to hate whenever you do that to somebody, even if you disagree with them, even if you think they are misguided. To try to assume that you know where somebody is coming from and why they are the person they are and that somehow they're misguided or dumb. Whoever you are, you become the thing you hate when you start treating people that way. But with this pseudo-tribalism, with these checklists... With our, with the increasing intensity of communication and information, you know, I've said before that people have become these little politicians, where it seems like they were they are always on a platform, advocating for something, and not just advocating for it, because it'd be one thing if it was a personal gesture. But people have become these little politicians where they're not just representatives of themselves and how they see the world, but they are representing an entire group, an entire way of thinking, a movement in everything they do. And so it's not just that they are acting as representatives of what they feel, because there's nothing wrong with expressing your values. There's not even anything wrong with virtue signaling. You know, it's not something that has to be all horrible. And you don't want to be in a position where every expression of your values gets shut down as virtue signaling. You don't want somebody to do that to you, and you don't want to do it to yourself, do it to other people yourself. But that said, there's a lot of really obnoxious, hollow virtue signaling. And I think it's okay to call attention to that, too. It's just that you shouldn't shut somebody down every time they try to share something they believe in. But where people become little politicians is they're no longer, it's this sort of depersonalization. 
And I've used the example on here of someone, you know, just copy and pasting some something somebody else wrote, somebody something that somebody else who's part of their pseudo tribe wrote. And it's as hollow as what you would see uh, an actual politician say from a stage. And of course, these people are on a stage now. That's the thing about you know, social media, that's the thing about phones, that's the thing about our greater interconnectivity and the way that that interconnectivity plays out on these public platforms that anybody can access at any given time throughout their day. And not just any given time, many people are spending a large portion of their day on these things. And inevitably, as this polarization increases as this ideological possession intensifies, as people start to operate more and more from this set of checklists that go beyond their own individual experience, and not that your values shouldn't transcend your own experience, you should care about other people's interests, but still, as more and more of what you care about is depersonalized, and more and more of your expression is on this public platform, it's inevitable that you would become a little politician. And I, I'm personally put off by it. I'm not put off by people expressing their values. And I don't know that I, I would be able to tell you exactly what makes someone a little politician, except I know it when I see it. There's a tone. And it's similar to the tone I get when I read an advertisement, when I hear a politician, an actual politician talk. Now I'm, I'm in a place now where I have to make that distinction between the actual politicians and the little politicians, the big, the big politicians and the little politicians. I feel like I have to make that distinction now. But it's a tone where there's something artificial about it. There's something rehearsed. There's something impersonal. And it's only increased in recent years, recent months. That's how things are escalating. In recent months, I've seen it more than I think I ever saw it in the previous five years. The rise of the little politicians. Rise of the little politicians. And some people might like that. Some people might find some comfort in that because you think many people want to be politicians. I never understood why kids ran for <laughs> elementary school political office. Like, what did you do as vice president of your elementary school sixth grade class? They would have somebody run for president, vice president, and treasurer. And just to show you how this tribalism, this pseudo-tribalism works and how early it sets in... We would have somebody run for, there was almost always a main boy candidate and girl candidate. Got the main boy candidate and the main girl candidate. And sure enough, everybody in the school would vote, first of all. Even the, even the kindergartners, even the first graders would vote. We would have an assembly where they would give speeches and they would always promise things they couldn't deliver on. So they're teaching you early that politics are hollow. And every year they would say, yeah, if you vote for me, we'll get a pop machine. These little girls, these little boys would stand up in front of the entire school and lie to your face to get your vote. And they would say, yeah, if you vote for me, we'll get a pop machine. 
because my elementary school never had a pop machine. My junior high did. We were old enough for pop then, but the, they never allowed our elementary school to have one. Probably, it's probably an issue of like returns, you know, it's probably, an, um, you know, an issue like how many kids in elementary school are walking around with a wad full of dollars to buy pop anyway? How many elementary school kids can even reach the, uh, you know, how many of them can even reach high enough to, to buy a pop from a machine? I don't know. But they would always promise a pop machine and longer recesses every year. This, I was in elementary school for six years, seven years. When you include kindergarten, I was in elementary school for 300 years <laughs> and every year they would say the same thing. They would always say pop machine and longer recesses. And they had heard the previous kids say that. It's not that they were all just pulling that from the top of their head. I mean, it's kind of intuitive. You think about what kids might want that's currently unavailable, but they would hear the year before, the year before the same kids would say it, or I mean, different kids would say it. They would, the, the sixth graders the year before said the same thing and, you know, just went on and on and they would never deliver. And the teachers and the administration of the ele- elementary school, the, the adults, they would let this go on. They never intervened and said, Hey, don't promise that. Cause you have no power. <laughs> you, you're going to have no power as president of the sixth grade of this elementary school. And you're not going to be able to, where are you going to get the money for a pop machine? How are you going to restructure the schedule in such a way to allow longer recesses? These kids are already getting three recesses a day. So you're going to start telling the teachers how to restructure their lesson plans to account for what? a half hour of extra recess time per day. You know, the teachers just let it go because they probably, they don't care. I mean, that's a big part of it. That's a, that's a, the teachers are the elites. And they're like, let these kids think that they're voting for something meaningful. Let these kids think that they're going to get what they want. And by let these kids, I'm including the kids running for office. I was going to say running for orifice, but I, I think I don't think I should make that joke. When I'm talking about elementary school elections, I don't think that's appropriate. I don't think those kinds of, I don't think that clever wordplay is appropriate. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to use the, those amazing jokes I've been making, like erection and orifice, elected orifice when I'm talking about this. But I am going to acknowledge that I'm not using them. I'm, I'm not, I'm only bringing it up to tell you that I'm not saying it. But yeah, I think I mean the the administration, the principals, like, hey, you think you're the president of of the school? Well, I'm the principal, and we never have to get a pop machine, even though. And I mean, meanwhile, there's a pop machine in the teachers' lounge. Meanwhile, there's a pop machine in the teachers' lounge. You know, these kids are like, we're gonna get a pop machine this year, and it never happens year in and year out. Meanwhile, the adults are just laughing going to the teacher's lounge and getting their sodas. But that is a good lesson because it teaches you that you'll never get what they say they're going to give you. Not that this is some hot take where it's like, oh, politicians politicians are, are full of lies. Politicians are full of lies. And you learn from the time you're a kid. But you could see where those kids wanted power. Because there was no incentive to become 
the president or vice president or treasurer and the treasurer gets me. What the heck did the treasurer do? What did a sixth grader who's the treasurer of their elementary school, what did they do? Because the president would read the morning announcements. That was their only duty, as far as I know. They would read the morning announcements and do the Pledge of Allegiance over the intercom. So they at least had some sort of function. They were at least the voice. I don't know what the, the VP did, and I really don't know what the treasurer did. But you can see where there was no real incentive to become the class president or the treasurer or the vice president at that age, because that's not something that you can use on your college transcript. You know, I guess being the, the president of the senior class in high school, you can use that as momentum going to college. Oh, I was involved in leadership. It's an extracurricular activity that you can use to your advantage. But I mean, is somebody putting that on their, is somebody putting an elementary school class president on their college transcript? Maybe. Maybe if they continued to run for office all through school, they can be like, look, I've been a politician for eight years. Maybe they do it then. But if you're just the elementary school president, I just don't understand the incentive except power, except popularity. And what I was going to say a second ago, too, is it really brought out this pseudo tribalism, even among us little kids where the boys would always vote for the boy candidate and the girls would always vote for the girl candidate. Didn't matter who they were, didn't matter how cool they were, you would vote for the person that was like you. And they would all make the same hollow promises. And sometimes a kid would get creative. Like I had a friend actually who ran for sixth grade class president and he had another one of my friends carry a boombox up with him and they played... I think it was Smash Mouth, not to get all like 90, 90s nostalgia. You ever heard of the 90s? You ever heard of Smash Myth in the 1990s? You know, I'm not trying to get all 90s nostalgia here. But I think he played a Smash Mouth song on a boombox. He had another friend of mine carry the boombox up on his shoulder and just like make a joke out of it. He didn't win, though. It wasn't enough to win because I think there were more girls voting in that election. More girls voted for the girl. Did you vote for the girl? But it is interesting how that happens. How even back then, we knew that all of the boys were voting for the boy and all the girls were voting for the girl. So pseudo-tribalism starts early. And that's another point I want to make because I really have to give a lot of pushback against this idea that technology, modern communication, social media has created this environment. It's escalated it, but that impulse is always there. Pseudo-tribalism is always there in the absence of real tribalism, which I don't think we've had for a very long time, the way civilization has gone. You know, I think it's been a very long time in this part of the world, in the Western world, since we've had the same sort of tribal affiliation. You know, America is much less tribal than any other country in history any other civilization in history. And, you know, maybe somebody could come up with another example, but I'd, I'd be shocked if there were another example that, you know, that beat America in that game. I mean, what other country can strip somebody, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Stripping can be great. 
as as strip clubs show, uh, stripping can be a good thing. But you know, what other country can strip somebody of their tribal identity within a generation after coming here, and not forcefully? You know, there's a lot of natural assimilation. Uh, you know, what other country can just completely remove somebody's tribal affiliation? And then, of course, people continue to use that. People will be like, oh, you thought that, uh, oh, because your parents assimilated after coming here, you know, you thought you were just an American. Well, uh, you know, here's how you're being screwed over. Oh, you thought you were just an American, but uh, you're really an Irishman still. And here's how the Irishmen are being screwed over in America. Vote for me. You know, we have to almost find that again in this country. In some cases, you know, of course, there's still some tribalism, but it is amazing how quickly tribal identities become little more than a decoration after a generation or two here. At least that's how they were. I mean, you look at the early 1900s and what happened, or you had these strong ethnic communities from Ireland, Italy, other countries, Scandinavia, you know, in my case, in my family's case, and I was just talking to my friend last night. I had a friend come through town. He and his fiance. Who, she's my friend too. You know, I, I shouldn't shouldn't just say his fiance. Um, and they we were standing around in my driveway actually, which I love. You know, it's it's part of this whole Coroni Vi thing. And on in Coroni on Coroni Island, there's lots of driveways, and you have to hang out with your friends just standing in the driveway. But I actually like that. Because I miss the days of hanging out in parking lots with my friend. I miss the days of high school where you just park your cars in the grocery store parking lot and just hang out. I like that. You know, it's it has nothing to do with Coroni Vi safety. The safety of Coroni Viland. It has nothing to do with that. It, I actually enjoy just... To me, it's a power move. Speaking of power... To me, there's, a, there's something powerful about standing in your driveway or standing in a friend's driveway with your arms crossed, just shooting the shit, and you know your neighbors can hear you. And I don't like all that performative stuff. Like, if I have people over at my house, I don't like the idea of somebody being able to see in. Like, oh, oh, he's got friends over. You know, I don't love that. I don't like people to see me in my own house. You know, I'd rather live in darkness than have somebody see me sitting here looking at my computer with shark eyes. You know, I'd rather have the blinds closed and be living in perpetual darkness than be seen. But there is something powerful about standing in your driveway, more so than your porch. The porch is a little too leisurely. The porch is just an extension of the couch, as far as I'm concerned, it's like I'm just relaxing. If you're standing in the driveway, there is a certain like, you know, it's it's like uh, House of the Rising Sun or something like one foot on the platform, the other foot on the train. That's what it's like when you're standing in your own driveway, just shooting the shit. And it's sort of a power move, like I said, because you're, you're making your presence known in the neighborhood. You know, I, I, somebody said something a little while back. They were talking about how important it is to be seen in your neighborhood. And I agree wholeheartedly with that. I take a lot of walks in my neighborhood. As a man, I just think it's important to be seen. 
And not that I want to be watched. There's a difference between being seen and being watched. And I believe it's important to be seen where you live. I mean, there's a guy who lives down the street, and I've never seen him out on the street. And I'll walk by his house on occasion, and he's like playing this game station. Like he's got a big computer screen with like a plush computer chair. It's a game station, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with this guy's gamer station. But it's the only time I've ever seen this guy is when he's like an inch away from his screen. I can see that it's some fancy game. And I just hope that guy knows that... I I just hope that guy understands that, you know, being seen now and again. Like, just take a stroll around the neighborhood. It doesn't have to be a performance because you're getting exercise, you're getting fresh air. But there's something to be said for being seen. And you think about certain cultures. You know, you think about guys in Italy take a stroll down to the piazza. They're going to stroll down to the piazza. You know, they do that. After dinner, the men walk. I mean, there's this these Indian families that live in a neighborhood I walk in, and I'll see just the men and the children. They'll take a walk, and they look like they're having a great time. They're just shooting the shit. I can't understand them. You know, they're, they're speaking Indian to each other, and but I love I just love seeing them. Because it's a group of about four or five men. They're probably all relatives. And sometimes they'll be pushing a stroller. They'll have a couple little kids with them. But it, it's just such... They're being seen. And like I'm over here like, I see you. <laughs> hey guys, I see you. Strolling. No, but th- there is a cultural thing where men do that. And I mean, everybody should. It's not about... It's not that men shouldn't. Or I mean, women shouldn't. Women should never be seen in the neighborhood. But I think just on some primal level as a man, it's important for me to just take a stroll around the neighborhood. It, I don't know, it does something. And I think it's good for your neighbors to know you're there. If you're a non-threatening person, if you're minding your own business, say hi to people if you want. But just being seen, having people drive in and out and just know that, okay... That's the guy who lives in that house. I've seen him in his yard. Because I respect it when I see a man just working in his yard, or anybody. It doesn't have to be about, I don't know. I, I don't feel that I have to include everybody in this. I respect everybody who makes their presence known in their neighborhood, in their yard. But there's something in particular about, like, when I see a man working in his yard, standing in his driveway talking to people, strolling through the neighborhood, I just feel a certain respect. I feel a certain kinship. Because I know how good it feels when I do that. (laughs) You know, it's really all about those simple pleasures. And I felt that way last night where these friends stopped by uh, from out of town. And, you know, they just, we just spent about a half hour just hanging out in my driveway. And I was just like, this this is good. (laughs) This is quality time. Uh, Not sure how I got there. Let's see here. Um, Pseudo-tribalism, did I have anything more to say about that? Pop machines, girls voting for girls, boys voting for for boys. I don't know, you just see it. It starts early. I guess I was talking about communication and technology and how it's very easy to think that technology is the culprit. Modern communication is the culprit. And kids voting for Boys, you know, boys voting for boys, girls voting for girls. That shows you that there is some sort of pseudo-tribal impulse. Because in reality, it's not like we're all on the same team. It's not like there was any actual benefit as a little boy to vote for another boy. 
There was no actual benefit. The boys of my elementary school did not represent a community unto itself. Yeah, if you're actually friends with the person, maybe. But even then, that wouldn't bring you any benefit. These kids have a meaningless, powerless title. Not to break any hearts here. Oh, you're in a, oh, hey, this is my son, Jimmy. He was recently elected uh, class president of the sixth grade. Hi, Jimmy. You know that that's a meaningless, powerless title? I'm not, I'm not in here to ruin anybody's dreams. But you can just see where that pseudo-tribalism kicks in, and it's something we've always been doing. In the absence of real tribalism, in the absence of real community, we tend to role-play. We tend to phone it in in this, and we get just as invested in that. We get just as invested in phoning it in as we do having a real representative of our actual community and tribe. And I think that's just to alleviate cognitive dissonance, because this is something I did want to get into, where I saw this happen in 2016 and recently here in 2020, where people voted for a certain candidate. I saw this particularly among people who voted for Larry Clinton, and I saw it recently with uh, Joe Bitten. Joe Bitten. I saw it with them in particular because many people saw those two candidates as the lesser of two evils. And that's something that comes up in every election. Every election in my lifetime, I've heard the lesser of two evils argument. But in particular, people have demonized Trumpsfeld so deeply that inevitably the alternative would be seen primarily as the lesser of two evils, particularly because a lot of the people I know didn't like either either of those candidates. I don't know very many people who liked Larry Clinton and Joe Bidding, Bitten, whatever his name is. I, I'm trying to think of a funny, a stupidly funny pun on this guy. But I saw where people didn't like him and they reluctantly voted for him and they made it clear they didn't like him, that they were just holding their nose while they swallowed the pill. But when someone does that, when they make that investment, when they vote for somebody, it's very difficult to live with the cognitive dissonance of not liking the person that you're supporting. Even though you see them as the lesser of two evils, there is a great deal of cognitive dissonance where you don't feel like you can authentically root for that person because the reality is you don't like them and you would have preferred Barney. You would have preferred him. Not me, but people feel that way where they feel that their guy got cheated earlier on in the process and he got kicked out of the game unfairly. And so they don't like the idea of supporting the person who essentially took his place. But when they make the vote, you notice that they start becoming fans of the person. Where there's people I know who were very reluctant and even made statements to the effect, as little politicians, they made statements to the effect of like, I don't like Joe Biden. But I'm voting, you know, I, but the, I, I really don't like Trumpsfeld. 
And then now I've seen them morph, and I don't want to say everyone's done this. I don't want to generalize, but I have seen specific people do this, and actually quite a few specific people, where that has slowly morphed, and maybe not so slowly, maybe actually quite quickly, that has morphed into, did you see his dog? Oh, he's so cool. He's so, (laughs) you know, you've seen that morph into that sort of attitude like, oh, look at his smile. Look at Look at his smile. He's just got such a real smile. Oh, did you see uh, Kamala Harris? Uh, Did you you see her? uh, You see that dance she did? Uh Uh Uh-huh. You know, oh, man. Oh, these voices, I can't even do them. Um, But you can see where this initial kind of disgust this sort of holding your nose while you swallow the pill has morphed into that was a such a good pill i love that pill oh actually you know i love that pill now and you can get used to something but i think a large part of that is reconciling the cognitive dissonance and i see this in particular with people who vote democrat but do so reluctantly because I know people of all types. I make it a point to know them. I like people of all types. And the interesting thing about Trumpsfeld is I know people who voted for him who actually are into his cult of personality. They actually genuinely like his show. But I also know people who don't like him and reluctantly voted for him but they haven't tried to reconcile the cognitive dissonance and they still don't like him. They voted for him, but they've maintained their dislike and they see him as the lesser of two evils, but they still dislike him. And that's interesting. And I think that tends to happen more on the right. Because I think one of the differences I see between the right and the left, or maybe not right and left, but the Democrats and the Republicans in particular because I don't want to generalize that the, the Democrats represent all of the left, just like I don't want to generalize that the Republicans represent all of the right, even though it's very hard to make that distinction in the days surrounding an election where all of the energy has been pooled into those two parties. But it is something I've noticed over the years, knowing Democrats and Republicans, where there's this kind of impression that's like, Democrats are the people who will smile to your face and then stab you in the back. Whereas Republicans can be very abrasive up front. Not that they aren't capable of of putting on a smile and stabbing you in the back. Of course, they're capable of that. But it seems like there's this perception, whether it's true or not, there seems to be this perception that Republicans are more likely to lie to your face whereas Democrats are more likely to lie behind your back. And that's sort of where I lean. You know, at the end of the day, we are talking about lies. At the end of the day, we are talking about liars. We are talking about people who are telling you that they're going to bring that pop machine in. The truck's on its way. There's a semi-truck on its way to the school right now with a pop machine. And if you vote for me, I'll make sure that the door is unlocked so that they can load that pop machine into the gymnasium here where you eat lunch. Because that was a disgusting thing about my elementary school is we ate lunch in the gymnasium and tables folded down. And if you had if you had uh, PE, gym class, after lunch, nothing they could do would make those floors clean enough. 
And kids are nasty. Like, kids spill stuff. There's, the school lunches were disgusting, and they would spill on the ground. And no matter how good the janitors were, and I'm, this is not an indictment of my elementary school janitors, although the more I, you know, just saying that out loud, and the more I think about it, maybe it is. Um, but they would never clean those floors quite well enough for my standards. And so you'd have gym class sometimes after lunch, and you'd see disgusting food still on the ground. And maybe if I had ran for elementary school class president, that would have been my platform. Hey, you ever notice that when you have PE class, gym class, after lunch, that the floors are still disgusting? I'm going to do something about that. There's never going to be a pop machine. You're never going to get longer recesses. Let's, ha- let's, let's have a gym class where you don't have to worry about disgusting bits of food still left on the floor. In fact, let's just build a lunchroom so that we don't have to have gym class in the same room where all you disgusted little cretins eat. Maybe I would have won. Now, see, if I had run on that platform, if that had been my platform, that's when the administrators would have stepped in. The administrators would have said, this guy's a problem. This guy's a fascist. This kid, he's a fascist. You can't elect him. That's what would have happened. That's when the administration would have stepped in. That's when the elites would have stepped in and stopped me. Because I would have been asking for real things. I would have been asking for a brand new lunchroom. Or at least more thorough cleaning of the gym floors after lunch. What is this, a gymnasium or a cafeteria? You think NBA players, you know, you think NBA players want to play on a court that people have been eating on? What is this? Um, you know, that's when they would have stepped in and be like, oh boy, he's asking for real things now. He's not just giving the hollow pop machine you know, he's, he's not just throwing out this pop machine line that every kid's done for the last 30 years. He's not just promising recesses. He's not just throwing out the same empty promises. This kid's talking about something real. That's when they would intervene. That's when there would be real voter fraud. Hey, kids, we'll, we'll give you... Uh, I don't know. I don't know how they would incentivize the kids to not vote for a real candidate in that situation. But anyway, yeah, I do. I don't know. I don't have anything else to say on the left or the right. I just think there is a perception, whether you agree or not, whether I actually agree or not, doesn't matter. I do think that there is a perception in this country that the left is more likely to offer some sort of platitude to your face and lie. Meanwhile, undermine that secretly. Whereas I think there's this idea that the right is just a little more upfront. But I don't think that's absolutely true because, I mean, you can come up with a long list of Republican weasels. Just like the Roger Rabbit weasels. Nostalgia. Oh, you remember Roger Rabbit too? How could I forget? How could I forget Roger Rabbit? I've never, there's probably 
few days have gone by in my life when I haven't thought about something in Roger Rabbit. The movie had a profound effect on me. Between the, the little cartoon shoe getting obliterated in the dip, the toxic dip, between the gang of weasels, between Christopher Lloyd's eyes popping out of his head and his voice getting all high-pitched, how could I go a day in my life without somehow thinking about that, without something reminding me of that? And for that matter, you know, in the last episode I was talking about, you know, how in life you can almost see cartoon, like so things that you're meant to interact with almost have this cartoon-like distinction where the the boulder that's going to fall looks a little bit different. I feel like Roger Rabbit did that very well. They bridged the gap between cartoons and reality and somehow made a world that didn't seem that... uh, I mean, to me, Roger Rabbit didn't seem as fake, I guess, as it should have. Fake isn't the word I'm looking for. Artificial. It's just a synonym. I like the synonym artificial better. Roger Rabbit didn't seem as artificial as a cartoon slash real world hybrid should. And what does that tell you? I mean, it'd be a better alternative to these holograms. And I feel very justified in my hologram discussions over the years because, I mean, I knew it was a slippery slope the second I saw the Tupac hologram. I knew it was a slippery slope when I paid $3,000 for front row seats to watch the Tupac hologram at Coachella. I knew it was a slippery slope, and I didn't realize it was this slippery, though, where recently there was one of the Parkland shooting victims' parents had a CGI version of him give a political statement. Even if you're just—and, you know, I'm not in this to judge anybody's parents. I'm not in this to judge— this guy's traumatized parents, okay? This is not me. I will indict my elementary school janitors for not cleaning the gym floor well enough after lunch, but I won't, I'm not going to make an indictment of a shooting victim's parents who are just trying to cope with it in some way. So this really isn't about them, but it is about the fact that this exists. The fact that People are recreating their murdered children to make political statements for TV commercials. You know, you can't even just be a living being with opinions and and stuff that, that go with you to your grave. People can recreate you now and use your image saying things that you might not have actually said, that you didn't say. Whether this kid would have believed that or not, whether this kid would have made the same political statements or not had he survived, or if he was given the choice, if he was consulted in heaven. Hey, we're going to make a a lifelike CGI version of you to try to influence an election. Do you support this? Would you say this? Maybe they found a way to consult you know, these people who are no longer with us. I'm just going to say right now, if somebody ever did that to me, I don't care what happens to me. I don't care how you spin some twist of fate that could happen to me. If you make a CGI representation of me advocating for anything, well, I don't know. I guess I can't do anything about it. If I'm dead, I can't do anything to stop you. 
except haunt you. I will haunt you. You thought that CGI representation of me was lifelike? Well, get used to seeing my ghost every day screaming at you. (laughs) Get ready for a good haunting, a, a lifetime of haunting. You thought I was outspoken when my CGI AI clone was telling you to vote against assault rifles. Get ready for my ghost, baby. No, I knew that was a slippery slope. I've seen other examples, too, since then. I've seen where this is just becoming reality. Between deep fakes, which I didn't trip out about. I don't like the idea of it. I guess my take on that, my take on deep fakes, is that if those become a real problem where we are getting almost perfectly real representations of people doing things that they didn't do, the world is going to be so out of orbit that that's going to be the least of my worries. I vote against it. As a little politician, I want to make it known right now that I'm against CGI representations of dead people giving political statements. I'm against deepfakes. I don't feel that I have control, though. And I feel that when these things become common, I mean, they're already a little too acceptable. They're already too, I mean, not acceptable, but they're already a little too widely acceptable. I'm not saying that right. They're already too widely accepted. That's what I was trying to say. Because I don't think they're acceptable. But something doesn't have to be acceptable for it to be accepted. And I think the acceptance of things like that and I guess that's a that's a tough thing, because, I mean, I'm even reluctant to say anything about this CGI version of a murder victim because I understand that his parents are traumatized. But uh, I'm also not going to say that it's okay. I'm not going to say that it's okay to recreate a dead person, to manipulate people that way. Because there was another version of that and I hate to comment on every every little example, but where a little girl who had died was recreated and they had her tell her mom to quit smoking. I think I'm getting that right. I think I'm getting that pretty close to right, where they had this little girl, the mom was able to interact with a CGI recreation of her deceased daughter using virtual reality. And they had the little girl tell the mom to quit smoking. It's like they want to make dead people annoying. That's basically what they're doing. Why not have this person offer some profound insight, some profound spiritual insight about what it's like to cross over? Oh, hey, I crossed over into the other world. And through this digital representation of me, I want to tell you something. Quit smoking. Vote for uh, vote for Larry Clinton. It's like, no, like, tell me something interesting. Oh, so you're dead, but you're still obsessed with the the nuances of earthly political life? Damn, I guess death sucks. Death sucks if you just, if, like, your goal is to come back in a digital form and tell people who to vote for or what to do with their bodies. 
You know, I think death is a lot more than that. And if we're going to put words in dead people's mouths, the least we could do is have them say something even pseudo-profound. It doesn't even have to be legitimately profound. You don't have to channel some spiritual master. But just have them say something. Have them offer some kind of universal platitude that will make sense to people, you know? But to even be tricked by that, to even let that pull at your heartstrings, to me, is maybe a bigger problem. The fact that something like that could even, the fact that it even makes me want to reserve judgment in talking about it because I don't want to be mean to the victim's parents, which I'm trying not to be, and I have no reason to be mean to them. But it's like the fact that there's even any, the fact that I even have to consider some sort of emotional spectrum when addressing this. Like, I should just be able to be like, no, fuck all that. I should, and I hear I'm swearing. I'm swearing. Not being a very good little politician. I'm sucking. I'm sucking at being a little politician. I'm swearing. Although it's just a matter of time before politicians are swearing all the time. Just a matter of time. Because the reason why I'm trying not to swear, just to get back to that, I, don't, I didn't cover it earlier. I mentioned that I'm trying to generalize less and I'm trying to swear less. One of the reasons I'm trying to swear less isn't because I have some opposition to profanity. It's because swearing is just an attempt to be cool. When somebody's swearing, it's just they're trying to tell you, hey, I'm cool. Did you know I'm cool? Did you know I'm cool? The fucking, yo, I'm fucking cool. Did you know I'm fucking cool? You know, it's, that's what I hear. That's what I hear from myself when I swear. And I, you know, I've always been, I've always sworn. I've always been somebody who swears, whatever. And I think swearing can be good as a point of emphasis. And it's absurd that swear words even exist. It's absurd that curse words even exist when you think about the fact that they are often synonymous with words that are completely acceptable in everyday conversation. You think about the word shit and how that's considered, you know, on the, you know, maybe not the worst thing you could say, but it's considered inappropriate. TV didn't allow it, still doesn't allow it in many cases. And yet it's completely synonymous with a bodily function that we're allowed to say using other words. And there's no difference. It's not like the F word, where there's kind of a slightly different connotation when you use that word, opposed to just sexual intercourse. But shit is a weird one, because I don't like to talk about bodily functions, first of all. I don't like to talk about bodily functions... I don't like to talk about bathroom humor. I don't like to talk about the bathroom, period, unless I'm talking about the inhumanity of urinals and pee troughs and how I'm just so horribly pee shy that I can't even be in the same room as somebody else when I urinate. I'll talk about that because that's important. You know, that's advocacy. That's where I'm a little politician. I become a little politician when it comes to the inhumanity of sharing a restroom with another human being, urinals, piss troughs, all these things that just demean you. That's where I become a little politician. Uh, and that's the only time that I'll talk about bathrooms. But other than that, I'm not just I'm not jumping at every opportunity I can to say shit. But the fact that shit is considered profane is interesting. 
<laughs> it's interesting. Especially when you're allowed to use synonyms for it as much as you want, really, within reason. Obviously, if you use them a little too much, it gets weird, but still, you're allowed to pretty much say what you want. So it's not like I'm one of these people who's like, oh, swear words, it turns out, are bad. No, it's not that. It's just that I think there's such a, there's such a cheap attempt to be cool and relevant and hip. They're a cheap way of saying, hey, just so you know, this is off the record. Just so you know, I'm being informal right now. Just so you know, I have a little bit of youthful spirit and I'm cool. Hey, do you think I'm cool? Did you hear what I said? I said, uh, effing. You think that's effing uh, cool? That's what I hear. So anyway, that's why I'm trying not to swear. It's just all, it's me becoming a little politician. And maybe that's the end game here. I'm going to be the worst little politician you ever imagined. All you people out there, everyone, everyone's, a, that's, that's my big generalization of the day. Everyone's a little politician now. And because everyone's a little politician, I'm going to be the worst one of all. I'm never going to shut up. I'm going to tell you how I feel about everything going on in the world. Oh, you want you want to know what my opinion is on the the vote in Uganda? I'll tell you. You want to know uh, oh you want a, a hot take on Brexit? I'll tell you. That's where all this is going is just me turning into the biggest little politician, the biggest little politician. And it's funny that I was talking about the elementary school elections earlier because those are literal little politicians. When kids were running for vice president of my elementary school, they were literal little politicians. But you know what? When people do that now, when people that I know, full-grown adults, become these little politicians online or even in their everyday lives, because those two things aren't as separate as they used to be, and they influence each other mutually. But when people become these little politicians today, to me, they might as well be that sixth grader standing at a podium talking about pop machines and longer recesses. They might as well be that. I feel that it's often just as empty. Not that they aren't talking about important things, but I often feel that it, it's hollow. It feels like an advertisement. And that's a weird thing, too. I don't want this to go on too long. I don't want this to go on too long. But, uh, you know, advertisements, because advertisements now are closer to the way people actually express themselves than I ever remember. And what made me think this is I had a yogurt. I went to Grocery Outlet and I got these yogurts. And when you go to Grocery Outlet, you're getting a different yogurt every time. You're getting a different brand of yogurt every time. For some reason, Grocery Outlet manages to, they bring in brands of yogurt that you never knew existed, and it seems to be different each time you go. But there was one, and I, I won't say the brand name, but they have a slogan on the side of the container, on the on the side of the yogurt container, and it says, permission to indulge, question mark, granted. And it, it plays into just that ugly self-care talk. Permission to indulge? Granted. You know, the idea of seeing that on the side of a yogurt container. And I was thinking how, like, I know so many people who talk that way now. And it's all this sort of self-care thing. 
Permission to indulge? Granted. It's like, when do you ever need permission to indulge? <laughs> like, like, oh, are you somebody who rarely grants yourself permission to indulge? It sure seems like you indulge a lot, and that's okay. But don't pretend like you're giving yourself permission. You know, and, and it just plays into this whole way of talking now. To where I read that on the side of an advertisement, I read, it's, it's, it's a slogan on the side of a yogurt container, and I immediately hear real people's voices. And you see this with online advertisements now, where they're able to catch up to the way people talk almost in real time. Where it doesn't take a long time and a bunch of board meetings to decide an advertising campaign. All you have to do is mimic the way people talk online and then just put your brand name next to it. And I think one of the more sinister, and I don't know that it's truly sinister, but it just gave me a really dark feeling. One of the more sinister examples I can think of was I recently saw a big company do an advertisement and the text was all in lowercase because that's the way people text. That's the way people talk. Hey, we got to let's come across like the way uh, the Zoomers, the Zoomers, they don't use capital letters. So we got to be like them if we're going to reach them. That's what they thought. And I can imagine the Zoom meeting, the Zoom calls, you know, that that computer conferencing software, Zoom. I can imagine the Zoom calls. Like, I can imagine what the marketing director looks like. I can imagine what the marketing director's glasses look like in that Zoom call where they convince the CEO that they shouldn't use capital letters anymore to reach their desired demographic. And it's, it's not sinister. It just feels that way to me. It's just dark. Not because I believe that, oh... Companies should always use proper grammar. I don't trust a company who don't use proper grammar. I ain't never going to trust a company who don't use proper grammar. You know, I'm not going to say that because it's not that important to me. But it was just an example of how easily people can be mimicked now. And that's what advertising is. You know, it's an attempt to mimic the way people think. To, con- to convince them, I mean, it, it, you know, you're, obvi- you're camouflaging yourself. It's not about saying, hey, this is our product and why it's good. It's, hey, look at me, uh, permission to indulge, granted. Permission to use lowercase letters to start your sentences, granted. And it's, just, it's, and it's interesting to me because there used to be a gap because commercials and advertising, like again, I have to say, this isn't something that came about because of digital technology and the internet. This didn't come about because of cell phones and social media. What that's done, though, is it's shortened the gap between those things. Where it used to be that it took a while and a number of board meetings for a company to start an advertising campaign that used some colloquial phrase that they thought would appeal to their targeted demographic. But now they can just listen to some social media manager who tells them, the kids are talking this way. The kids are talking this way. And it it goes hand in hand. I think the reason why that came across so sinister to me, this lowercase letter thing, 
Eric's lost his mind. He's terrified of lowercase letters at the starts of sentences. It's true. I like capital letters. Um, but, you know, I think one of the reasons that was so sinister is I had just days before I saw that, I had heard this, I guess it was a study. I seem to pay attention to a lot more studies than I realized, but it was a study that came out that said Zomers, Generation Zom, felt that adding periods to the end of sentences in text messages was aggressive. And that was the word that they used, aggressive. They find periods at the end of sentences aggressive. And I get it, actually. The thing is, I do get it. I hate that I get it. But I, I do understand it. I understand what that thought is. It's almost too formal. It's a little, it's stern. Because I've sent a friend a message before and they've responded with just yes, period, or no, period. And I've thought, huh, are you, is, that, is that some sort of uh, fist to my face? Are you kicking me in the balls? You know, I've had that thought before. But I also, you know, I like periods. And I'm not going to just, I'm gonna, it's not aggressive. And the fact that, you know, this is all trending in that direction where it's like using proper grammar in a text message is seen as stern or even aggressive to use the word that they used. And that's what that company was playing off of. This company who decided to use informal grammar, what they were playing off of was that, the fact that younger generations, and I don't think it's limited to Zomers, but just the fact that younger generations find traditional sentence structure off-putting. And so it's not wrong of the company to adopt that way of expressing themselves to appeal to those people and I'm certainly not attached to everything that we have right now. You know, it's like so much is an illusion. You know, so many things are an illusion and you shouldn't, you shouldn't be attached to those. You know, it goes against all of my beliefs basically to be like, oh, I'm so attached to capital letters that I'm going to get angry that an advertisement that isn't even targeted for, to me is trying to appeal to younger people by not using periods or not using capital letters. You know, it's stupid of me to even notice that, let alone care about it, let alone talk about it. But I guess on a gut level, I don't like it. And things like that make me aware of how short that gap is getting, where advertisements can adapt to the way people talk now faster than they ever did before. And that is sinister. I think there is something sinister about that on even an evolutionary level. And it goes hand in hand with this stuff that I'm saying about AI. What I'm saying about CGI recreations of dead people saying what you want them to say. Companies adapting to changes in language, changes in phrasing at a much quicker rate than they ever did before. Because you can't worry about staying ahead of that. Like, I don't live a life where I'm like, oh, I've got to stay ahead of the AI dead people. I've got to stay ahead of the advertisements that are trying to co-opt current slang. You know, it's not like I live a life where I think about that, but I notice it. And then when you have the real people, because advertisements aren't people. 
They're trying to mimic people. They're trying to mirror people. CGI dead people, again, trying to mimic people. In this case, people who are no longer around. But then you see what real people are doing, and many real people, certainly not everyone, but many real people are becoming these little politicians who are making hollow statements, acting as representatives of these pseudo-tribes that don't represent any actual concrete community. And then you look at your actual community, and you might not even know your neighbor. You know, you might not, your neighbor might not even say hi back to you when you wave at them. And I'm fortunate to have a good rapport with a couple of my neighbors, and I'm not Mr. Neighbor. Hey, everybody, I'm Mr. Neighbor. You know, I'm not Mr. Neighbor by any means, but I do consider that my community. And I know for a fact that the people next door to me don't see the world the same way I do. I know for a fact. They don't necessarily know what, what I'm all about, but from things they've put on their house, signs they've put out and stuff, I know that I don't necessarily see the world the same way they do. But first and foremost, I see them as my neighbor, and I live next door to them. And if that's not community, nothing actually is. And my sense of community, the people who live in my neighborhood, that goes above and beyond all of this pseudo-tribalism. Because these pseudo-tribes don't represent real communities. And if you're acting like a little politician who represents a pseudo-tribe, you're just, you might as well be in a video game. You might as well be playing Second Life. And maybe that's what you want. You know, maybe that's what somebody actually wants life to be. Maybe they want life to be a video game. But video games, no matter how creative they are, no matter, no matter if you're a character who has wings and flies around, they will always be a pale imitation and reorganization of the world we already have. Oh, I'm taking wings and I'm putting them on this guy with a sword so he can fly around and fight guys in the sky. Cool. It's cool that we can do that. But you're taking elements of the world we already have and just recombining them creating this hybrid. Oh, he's a bird guy. I don't even know what game this is. I'm making this game up. If you're a game designer, get in touch with me. I got ideas for new games. A guy with wings flies around with a samurai sword and he fights things in the sky. But no, you know, it's, it's, I don't know. You know, do you want to live in that world? Is that world inevitable? Where we're all these little political representatives of nothing. Not that there isn't something to represent, which is you yourself. You know, live according to your own values. And that will speak far greater, you know, that that will have far greater impact than voting. And I'm not using this as an an opportunity to slam voting. Oh, you're slamming voting. I'm not using this as an opportunity to slam anything that somebody else cares about or something that is important in its own way, but living according to the values that you want to see play out around you. That itself has so much value. And that doesn't make you a little politician to do that because you don't actually have to say much of anything. 
simply being that. You don't have to worry about the cognitive dissonance of reluctantly voting for a candidate you don't actually like and therefore having to, having to do this performative support for them after they win office so that you don't feel like a hypocrite. You don't have to deal with any of that cognitive dissonance because you will simply be living the life you want to live and having the impact that you want to have to create the world that you want to live in. And are you going to realize that dream perfectly? No. But you're going to live it out. And it's actually a lot of fun to live that way. Not that I'm doing it perfectly by any means. But it is what I'm trying to do. And I feel that the people who inspire me the most are the people who succeed at doing that. And they don't seem to be living in a fantasy world. They don't seem to be serving as these little politicians promising things that will never come to be. They don't seem to need to create dead, you know, CGI versions of dead people to guilt you into voting a certain way or to stop smoking. They simply live the life they want to live. And in doing that, they set a certain example. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free So take